Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur... Please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say. So there will always be others that see it differently, and I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. Being a little hard-nosed about this and having had a look at the scene and understood the horror that Robert went through prior to his death, the correct verdict was murder all three of them, but then I'm a little biased. I always looked up to John Ashby, my guest today, when I was in the crime department. Policing was in his blood, including a brother who was an assistant commissioner. I was pretty sure that John would end up an assistant commissioner as well, at the very least, maybe even a chief one day. John, who I always spoke to as Sir, he was such an approachable man for someone in his position, which was a bit unusual, I've got to say. The fact that he was a Tiger supporter just confirmed to me that he was a good man. John's personality made him very popular amongst the troops and the braid, so much so that he often filled vacancies where superintendents, commanders, etc., went on leave for any reason. And sometimes those positions he was filling, they were maybe for a couple of days, maybe a month, maybe even six months. In 2005, when I transferred to the country, I lost touch with everything that was going on within the crime department and I never saw John again. Well, that was until recently when we reconnected. I just knew that John would have an interesting story to share, but his story was nothing like I expected. I learned that by 2005, John was cooked mentally and he left Victoria Police a broken man after 35 years. He hid his condition so well that his colleagues didn't believe him when he told them of his battles. He'd tricked not only himself but his colleagues by what he referred to as the John Ashby Show, that capable, confident, knowledgeable, versatile, proficient, admired, competent man that he appeared on the outside. It sounds very similar to the Narell Fraser Show, a facade which showed confidence on the outside but underneath we were a crumbling mess. We kept our issues a secret 
due to the shame and humiliation of being seen as weak or unable to cope. Like many of us, John discovered another world, which was just as interesting and just as enjoyable, but it hasn't been without his challenges. The only stress John has these days is whether he's going to play nine holes of golf or 18. But not everyone who suffers a mental illness is as fortunate as John and I. Many of our former colleagues end their lives rather than admit that they're mentally unwell. We need to normalise mental illness rather than people feeling like they're a failure. So thanks, sir. Uh, Sorry, (laughs) can't get out of the habit. I mean, John, uh, for being our guest today. Um, So first of all, you sound like you're in a wind tunnel uh, or you're on a truck route. So let's continue on and see how we go. Um, But uh, let's start with, are you any good at golf or is your best work done in the clubhouse after golf? (laughs) Well, thanks for the introduction, Norellan. It has been great to reconnect with you uh, recently. Uh, Am I any good at golf? Well, I'm an older Australian these days and golf gets harder and harder and I've figured out you don't get any better as you get older. I'm okay on my day, but my days come far and few between, I'm afraid. So, <laughs> What about your um, uh, out in the clubhouse after golf? How are, what's, What are you like out there? Any good? I've been known to have uh, my day in the clubhouse afterwards <laughs> and, uh, and uh, at other people's houses beyond the clubhouse, absolutely. <laughs> Golf for me is all about it's, it's, um, it. All of, these days it's all about the social interaction and, and the fun you have and the banter and, and, and that's what I love about it these days. Yeah. Um, I've given up trying to hit the perfect shot because uh, I think I've done that once in my life and that's about it. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, and, you know, I don't think now's the time for us to be talking about football. The The Tigers have had a good run, uh, but, gee, we've dropped the ball of late. And now uh, we're in our very comfortable default position of ninth. Yes, I know. Yeah, well, look, we, we've uh, we've had a massive, uh, massively bad run with injuries. Yeah. I don't I sound like too much of an oracle, but a few years ago, uh a mate of mine said to me, oh, the Tigers are looking good. And I said, well, look, we've got a window of opportunity. Whether they take that window yeah. of opportunity is another thing. Well, I took that window of opportunity three times. Yeah, yeah. And and why shouldn't we share that great feeling with others? But the fact that Dusty's out, um, oh, look, I think our great ride might have come to an end, but it's been a great ride, hasn't it? It has been a great ride, but, you know, I haven't lost all hope yet. I think this year's... Uh, this year will be interesting. I heard uh, the coach say the other day that you know, if we get into the finals, we could create some damage. Well, we'll see about that. But look, given a reasonable run with injuries and um, and a, and a free COVID-free year next year, we'll see what happens. But look, it's there are some signs there that you know the list's getting older, and um, you know every team has to evolve. So. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, look, John, I thought uh, we might first talk about your career within VicPol prior to uh, what led up to you leaving after 35 years. So could you just tell us about some of the different departments and squads that you worked in? Oh, look, I was always a working policeman. I spent, um, you know, the usual four or five years in, in uniform in the early 70s, having joined in 1970. Uh, I spent a, a great four years at South Melbourne in the uniform department, the uniform um, section. Um, I went to uh, the crime cars, as it, was, as it was called then, did DTS in about that detective training school in about 1976 and uh, ended up uh, or started my career in the CI in about 1976 as well. Went back to South Melbourne in the CI, spent a great couple of years there. In fact, I still catch up with some of the some of the people who were still with us uh, from the old South Melbourne days. I was there between 1979, uh, 77 and 79, and then sort of uh, got promoted to sergeant. Uh, I found my way back to Russell Street CIB in the early 80s, the homicide squad in the... In the um, uh, about 1985 through to late 1988, got promoted to inspector uh, at the uh, 
what was then called the Internal Investigations Department. I actually, interestingly, I never ever wanted to go to the Internal Investigations Department, but they chose me. So uh, I ended up being there for about four and a half years and got promoted again there uh, to Chief Inspector. Um, um, I was a little bit over it. Um, the internal investigation side of it, where you're obviously investigating corruption and misconduct of uh, police members, and um, you do need a break from that, like you do many aspects of policing. So, yep. Yep. I had a couple of placements. I spent some time at the uh, at the officers' college at Early uh, Early in South Yarra. Um, I, I was on the directing staff there briefly. Um, did a course in New South Wales, an executive leadership course. I was sponsored to do that by um, um, then Je- Deputy Commissioner John Frame. Um, when I came back, I was placed out at Knox uh, as a uh, Chief Inspector and, and Acting Superintendent. Um, found my way back into the Crime Department um, in about 19, yeah, 1997. Um, and um, I took up a position that had been vacant for some time uh, running the Gaming and Vice Squad. And um, when the Gaming and Vice Squad was uh, disbanded uh, following a review of the Crime Department, I was asked to set up the Sex Crime Squad, where, of course, I made your acquaintance, and that was an amalgamation, as you will recall, of the uh, then Rape Squad and the Child Exploitation Unit. So yeah. no sooner was the squad set up, and I, I loved my time there, albeit very briefly, um, I was promoted to superintendent, back to the ethic, well, back to what the internal investigations area, which by that stage had become the ethical standards department. Yep. And once again, um, I didn't apply for that position, but that part of the organisation found me. And uh, from there, after... Um, uh, she who must be obeyed, or I, excuse me, Christine Nixon was appointed chief commissioner. <laughs> there was a shuffle of shuffle of uh, superintendents um, uh, all around the place, and uh, I was shuffled out to um, what was then Region Four as the crime superintendent. And that was I was there for my last two years, and um, it was those two years that really confirmed to me that I was quite cooked. <laughs> and uh, I did do some temporary assignments from that position. I never really enjoyed that position because there wasn't any any real line control of uh, of the troops or the operational side of things. I fully understood what the position was all about, but it really wasn't me. Um, um, worked with some nice people there, some good people there, but uh, but you know it was a, it culminated in. The impact of the whole probably thirty-five years plus, a, you know, some personal issues that have occurred, and and um, uh, and um, I, I, was, I found myself doing some temporary duty over at over at Knox as an acting superintendent again, and um, uh, I, one day I was at work and um, I just found I couldn't handle it. And I walked out and uh, went to the doctor, and I didn't go back. But overall, um, look, I love my police career. I just struggled over the last two or three years as to why I didn't like it anymore for those last two years. So, I, yeah, I faked it a lot over over the last several years, but it was really the last two years that I, I absolutely struggled with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, I had never heard of, um, really I'd never heard or associated anxieties, disorders with myself or, you know, black dog or anything else like that. But, uh, you know, during consultations with um, my medico, my doctor and um, a couple of counsellors, I finally gave in that, yeah, okay, I had some of those issues and they they had to be dealt with. So, yeah, unfortunately I... I was ignorant to it, notwithstanding medical advice and counselling and even personal advice. So I, uh, I thought the cure for me was leaving VicPol. <laughs> and uh, so I, I resigned. I had did have some sick leave and once I decided that I was, um, I was over-policing, that, uh, that it was, the policing was over for me at least, I, I 
thought that the cure would be to break that tie. So I retired on my 55th birthday in November 2005 and I thought miraculously um, <laughs> that cloud of work that pervaded me would be gone and uh, yeah. indeed it was for some for a little while, only for a little while and then um, I still didn't sleep very well and, I, you know, I still had, uh, you know, enormous um, issues with uh, patients and um, like anger issues and um, so uh, that was really disappointing because I thought that I had the cure, which was to leave policing, but um, uh, it, that wasn't the case. But, you know, I digress. You only asked me about my career and I've given you <laughs> a, a whole box and dice a little bit. I knew we wouldn't be struggling for a word or two, John. I haven't taken the alleys out of my mouth yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Look, there's a lot of questions there, but I suppose if we can go back. So what, what was it about policing that you loved? Look, uh, this, is, uh, this is a little-known fact. My father actually um, tried to join the police force uh, with his best mate and um, his best mate got in and Dad missed out because of height, strict height re restrictions and Dad was about, I don't know, five foot. He, well, anyway, he was, he was under the height restrictions so he never got in. Now his mate, best mate, his name was Noel Wilby. Noel Wilby became Chief Commissioner and indeed my brother Noel was named after Noel Wilby. Oh, yeah. And... Um, I remember speaking when I when I graduated. Noel Wilby was the chief commissioner, but he was quite unwell at that stage. And I remember at my my sister's graduation parade at the uh, what was then well yeah, out at the academy. Um, Noel Wilby attended, and uh, he was well. He was retired at that stage, but he had a chat to my brother and myself, brother Noel and myself, and. Uh, he asked us what we wanted to do in the job and, of course, Noel was brand new and I was, um, you know, about five years into the job at that stage and still as keen as mustard and, you know, wanted to leap tall buildings with a single bound and all that. Um, <laughs> and Noel Wilby said, son, uh, I've been through it all and you need to find a, a senior Connie's job in the bush and uh, don't worry about all the promotions and all that rubbish. It'll kill you in the end. So hello, <laughs> yeah. So Noel, Noel, and I, of course, took no notice of that. Although Noel was much more ambitious than me, I, I, my my ambition was to be a detective senior sergeant, and um, the rest of it. Even though I I applied for promotion and did promotional exams and courses, the rest of it it, it sort of evolved as opposed to. In a, a, an evolved promotion process rather than, for me, a targeted process. Although I must admit I got to senior sergeant pretty quickly and um, I thought to myself, gee, there's a long career ahead to be at the one rank, so <laughs> that's when I decided I'd do the inspector's exam, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I suppose it's fair to say that I really did enjoy and relish the the operational side up until when I got promoted to inspector in uh, 1988. But yeah, so look, policing was wasn't quite in the blood, but it was in the in the in the outer reaches of the blood. And I, look, I, I used to like true crime stories and all that sort of stuff. I I had this. Uh, my father had a lot of mates that were coppers as well, and um, it seemed like a good thing to do. All I did, but they, my my folks wanted me to join the police police force as a cadet from school, and I wouldn't have a bar of that. I mean, I was in a I was in a, in a school band and I, you know, wanted to hang around with my mates and um, I, yeah, I couldn't see myself wearing a uniform at whatever age I would have been at that stage, 17 or something. So uh, so a couple of years later I, th I thought maybe they had a point there. So so I applied <laughs> to join and I, I got sworn in on the 7th of July 1970 and graduated on the 20th of, uh, 20th of November of that year. 
the CV that you went through is very, I mean, how could you not be impressed with that? But there's something that really stood out to me then when you talked about you were uh, told basically to go to double ID, um, internal investigations, as I keep referring to the um, um, squad of many different names. But, <laughs> but um, I remember I was asked to go there and yeah. basically I was told, and, you know, I wasn't very, oh, what would be the word strong, I suppose, in those days. But I tell you what, I kicked up a storm and I refused to go and I said, and I really believed it, I said, if I have to go there, I will resign, that I felt so strongly about I could, I just didn't want to be investigating um, my own, you know, rank. I just didn't want to be investigating police. But Look, you're right, but look, when you, when you join the police force, you don't join with the view of investigating your colleagues, yeah. you invest. You know, you join the police force because you want to catch crooks, or you want to, you know, uh, you know uh, pursue motor cars and whatever, whatever your aims are. But I don't think I don't think anyone really joins the police force with a view to, you know, want to investigate coppers. Mm. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, look, it's it's interesting. Having said that, you know, overall, I spent. It, 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 three different ranks and have two different uh, periods in my career, um, you know, nearly nine years there. And um, they did some, you know, pretty worthwhile work there. I might say when I went back there as a superintendent, I wasn't in charge of an area that involved investigation work, which I was thankful for because when I was told I was going to get the job, I sort of said, well, been there and done that. I don't want to do investigation work. I, I don't want to be involved. And my then assistant commissioner, the late Graham McDonald, said, well, no, he said, I'm putting you in charge. The, the services division, the services division was a bit diverse and, and it supported some aspects of investigation, but it didn't, it wasn't an investigations area. So I had the discipline advisory unit, which meant we had responsibility for running the discipline system. And that was always evolving due to changes with the Police Regulation Act and things that happened with and through the Police Association. Had the internal witness support um, unit at the customer service area that received complaints and compliments. And uh, people have always laughed when I've said they received compliments. Believe it or not, people actually did ring up and compliment their interaction with the police. And we used to create, um, you know, uh, attaboy files in relation to that to go out into, uh, into, into the ether to, for people's, to go into people's records and for them to be informed about. Also had um, another unit that was a little bit proactive in trying to uh, research and risk unit, which was uh, proactively tried to identify identify areas um, that might have created a risk to the to the force um, or to members. And uh, so that was pretty interesting. That was that was staffed by um, pretty well qualified uh, unsworn members. Um, it always came with magnificent CVs and qualifications and uh, um, the then a manager of that unit, uh, uh, Graham Cruz, the late Graham Cruz, um, he used to do a lot of work to attract the right people to that place and he was always horrified when they left after 18 months or two years, I always used to say, just a dot point on the CV, Graham, you can't get too upset about it. That's true, that's he true. Couldn't, he, couldn't quite, he couldn't quite get that. But, <laughs> but yeah, look, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was quite a good area to work in. I, I found myself um, um, on, on, in, that, you know, in that department um, a part of a lot of part of or managing a lot of working groups um, like a lot of strategic things that were happening in the job in relation to well the discipline system the evolution of that the uh, any any uh, required legislative changes um, or re- uh, required um, um, 
strategic or policy changes in relation to legislative um, amendments, um, you know, the Internal Witness uh, Whistleblowers Act was one of those that you know, created a, a hell of a lot of work. Drug alcohol policy, drug alcohol testing for police police yeah. members yeah. post uh, incident. I, I know and when that came in, as yeah. on the troops, we were horrified. I know, we absolutely yeah. horrified. For some reason, we thought that we were just above everybody else, and like nobody else could drink and drive, but we could. Like, what what a mindset! That is a dangerous mindset to have, isn't it? Well, it is. And look, Narelle, that was my. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Attitude as well. I thought, Christ, there's some, there's some, mm. there's some liberties being taken away here. And uh, but then when you think about it, and I put myself in the position of being on the divisional van at the old South Melbourne, and of course it was a different era, a different era altogether. But if you're going to be working in a divisional van with someone on night shift, gee, it'd be nice to know if they. If they came to work clean and sober, <laughs> That's and clean, sober, and 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 you and I would we we will we have memories of people that would come to work reeking of uh, oh yeah Bruto Five yes. <laughs> as as we used to have a colleague at one of the police stations I was at and he was known to come in with the Bruto Five cologne and we always used to laugh at it but it's no laughing matter. I was just going to say driving cars and being involved in pursuits and all that sort of stuff. I mean, and and of course. With the drug alcohol and alcohol testing, we had some pretty good intelligence that, um, you know, to avoid um, the 0.05 um, drink driving rules that some members were uh, um, potentially and in reality using um, using other substances, um, which arguably were just as bad, if not worse, than, um, than, than, uh, than coming to work. Uh, yeah. Hey, hey, John. While we're on um, double ID, so yeah. and this m- might sound a cruel question, and I don't mean it to be, but so what did you enjoy about investigating other members? Well, look, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, for initially, I was staggered. At, I mean, I used to say we there should have been a section of the Police Regulation Act that created an offence for did commit an act of gross stupidity. <laughs> and that, that, you know, like some members in some circumstances left their common sense 
at home or in their locker or, or whatever because, um, you know, some of the acts were just – and, look, I've got to say the great majority of people I worked with there weren't looking to um, have people lose their jobs over misconduct. It was, it was a, trying to provide some sort of educational development process and, and, and of course, that's a role that – a lot of police members just thumb their nose up. Oh no, the toe cutters there, they're just there to chop off heads and, and uh, you know, um, find things that are wrong. And in some, in the simplest terms, the black and white terms, that's correct. But, but in reality, um, you know, you are trying to protect the organisation, protect the members that are doing the right things and try and create um, a learning environment for those that have done the wrong thing. At the top end of the of the stream, you've got members who who are corrupt, and and um, you know Bob Falconer, who is uh, at AC at, at uh, um, ESD and, and IRD at least when I was there, um, he used to say that, and I don't think he was far wrong, having spent about nearly nine years in in that part of the in that part of policing, um, that there are a certain amount of police police percentage-wise that are incorruptible yeah, because you because you uh, come because the force uh, recruits from society you get a cross-section of society so you're going to get some people who you know would be corrupt if they were um, uh, garbage collectors or, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, yeah. or whatever so they come into the police force with some with some taint them and they see the police force as a, uh, you know, they look out for commercial opportunities, shall I say, within their, within their, within their um, role as a policeman. Then you get others then, and that the percentages vary and how would you know, how would you work it out, how would you qualify it or quantify it? But you've got another area that, um, and it was very true, I think, that at certain times some people might be corruptible. You know, if they're going through a marriage breakup or they've got massive amounts of debt because of a marriage breakup, because of a whole range of different things, and the temptation came at the right time, some people might be. Uh, and uh, yeah, so the, you know, that's they're the sort that the police force and the, and the community doesn't want mm. uh, in a policing role. So, so look, there's a lot of. There's a lot of um, good work to be done there, but I don't. I'm, I'm the last to say that everyone there was a knight in shining armour that mm. had mm. the correct uh, and appropriate um, aims and hopes and for the, for the organisation or for the members that they uh, that they served. And you know, I think that we have. Uh, well, certainly in my day, uh, I would hope it's very different now. But in our day, I think that we all worked with um, somebody. Well, I know I did. That was corrupt and that was dishonest, and nobody wants to work with them. So there is a a very um, good reason why we need to have. Um, a, police, investigating police. But um, look, uh, we could spend all day talking about police investigating police because I was just <laughs> going to say to you, but then I think, no, I'd better move on. But I was just going to say what your thoughts are about police investigating police because that has come up time and time again. And I'm starting to waver a little bit about us being, uh, us as in police, being investigated, investigated by you know, maybe a panel of people where there are some police, but I think it's getting to the point where I think we need to rethink that whole that whole thing. Look, I I, I don't disagree. I, I grappled with that for some time. If if police if police weren't investigating their own, mm. uh, it would make management and supervision a hell of a lot easier. Mm. Um, I mean. If you are a supervisor, if you're a sergeant and you're a senior sergeant and you get an ESD file to investigate, um, um, suddenly you are seen by some of the troops to put on the black hat. You can't just automatically take that off if you've had cause to discipline someone as a result of complaint investigation. You can't just suddenly become, again, 
um, the sub-officer that that member goes to speak to, yeah. to you know, in terms of guidance or whatever, because uh, in some cases you can be, but it depends on the personalities and how the matter was handled and how the handling of the matter was perceived by the subject member. It's, it all gets really, really complex. Mm-hmm. But the difficulty is, uh, is that across the world, the best in my experience and observation is is that the best model is for police investigating police with a valid um, civilian uh, oversight of the investigations. See, my, my argument to that would be that I understand what you're saying, that the best people are the best trained, which are police, yes, but why can't you uh, train a civilian to investigate as good as a police, because in the end we're all civilians. Um, mm, yeah. So why couldn't you uh, train somebody up? See, I, I was trying not to go down this path. I, I knew I'd get <laughs> stuck, not with you, with me, <laughs> because it's just such a an important um, discussion at the moment because it's, you know, and judges, in, investigating judges, they seem to be able to do it okay. Like there's – we. Oh, I don't know. I just don't think we've got it right. People who make complaints about broadcasters mightn't think that the uh, their complaints are handled all that well because they they're handled sort of <laughs> by a uh, a so called independent body of their own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but look, it's look fascinating subject that's always going to get it's always going to create debate. Yeah. Um, I think it, look, it's it's that civilian oversight that I spoke about. Um, it's really important to get that right. And in Victoria, I mean, once upon a time, when I first joined the police force, there was there was no validated complaint process. If you, if a person had a complaint that uh, the policeman had given him a cuff behind the ears, the method generally was to for that person to issue counter summonses against the member to be heard before the court. That's right. Yeah. Um, and. Um, but, but, you know, there was no proper complaints process as such until after the Sir Eric Sir, Sir Johnson, Johnson inquiry, uh, which occurred in the late 60s, early 70s, came out with a whole raft of uh, recommendations, including the uh, creation of, a, of an internal investigations process. And um, um, even that in those early days did have a civilian oversight. I think it was a superintendent and a... And a, and a sergeant, and then there was a, uh, a retired magistrate who notionally oversaw the investigations. Well, you know, the history, just going through the history of internal investigations and, and complaint investigation in Victoria Police is a fascinating and long, long, long story and how it's evolved, you know, from that two-man unit to uh, the internal investigations unit to the internal investigations department, uh, department in its own right, to um, the evolution of the ethical standards department and whatever it's called now, which is probably the ethical standards command or something like that. But, um, you know, and it's... it's uh, the, the, uh, so that since we've had, or since Victoria Police had a process for investigating police, there has been oversight mm-hmm. and like the growth of the internal investigations or ethical standards investigations area, that oversight has grown too and it's, it's gone through, um, you know, many, many, many changes. And I think a couple of those models, a couple of those, not so much the models, but the people chosen to man those models probably could arguably have been the wrong choices. You know, Uh, I've done very well uh, with not talking about that. Um, (laughs) Very well. (laughs) I need, I want to move on to you at the homies. Yeah, sure. I want to, to you at the homies, at the homicide squad. Um, When we reconnected, you told me about the first murder investigation that you had uh, in 1985 where, uh, can you just take us through it because you were talking about how difficult um, it was back in those days to well, of course we didn't, yeah because we didn't of the evidence was, yeah we didn't we didn't think it was difficult because that was you know you, you work with what you had to work with so uh, just briefly the story was that and I won't use surnames here but uh, Robert was the uh, was the victim and, and uh, Robert had uh, had been involved in a motor car accident in which he was a passenger with his 
so-called mate Peter. And uh, Peter didn't have a licence and had some matters pending, so they hatched this plan that uh, Robert would, um, when the police came, he'd put his hand up as, as the driver. Um, and then Peter, uh, Robert at least, was interviewed by the police and he, he became aware that he was going to be charged with some traffic offences. Um, he, yeah, he, was involved, he was advised that there was something like $5,000 worth of damages to the other car for which there was no insurance. So it was all sort of this simple plan that these two mates hatched on the side of the road was falling apart. So Robert went to Peter and uh, said, I can't follow through with this plan, Peter. And he said, well, you're going to have to because I'm not going to take the fall on a deal's a deal sort of thing. Um, Robert said, I don't think so, I don't think so. Now, Peter had another mate by the name of Frank. And Frank was, had done a, a fair bit of serious time in jail and for violent offences. And Peter had his own budding career as a as a <laughs> And uh, so Frank convinced Peter that Robert had to go. So they hatched this plan whereby um, uh, they would um, kill Robert. So they, um, along with another mate of theirs who they recruited just to use his car, a fellow by the name of Ollie, they, uh, they uh, kidnapped Robert from a bungalow in his father's backyard and um, with the view to kill him. And they um, were going to take him out to the back blocks of Balan and um, kill him, weigh him down and throw him in one of the lagoons. And Robert had a, uh, had a, you know, like everyone, had an uh, innate ability to fight for his life and um, he escaped he escaped the car, not before having been beaten and uh, received some stab wounds in the car. And, um, and out, out, uh, somewhere uh, in, a, in a country area, having escaped the car, these three other, Peter, Frank and Wally, were, were looking for him in the dark um, and uh, they literally stumbled over him and Robert was, um, Robert was you know, hiding as much as he could, or lying in a paddock, hoping they wouldn't find him. And uh, anyway, they they, they uh, killed him there and there, stabbed him numerous times. And um, Robert's body was found the next morning, and um, that was the job we got called out to. Um, we had one piece of um, forensic evidence, if you could call it that, at that stage, which was a tire track. Um, Obviously, impressions were taken in relation to that. And so your avenues of inquiry start with, as they would these days, uh, was to find out who Peter was, find out who his, uh, who his uh, friends were and start talking to his, to his friends and, um, and uh, you know, turn over the, turn over the uh, uh, trying to you know, get some information and uh, evidence uh, that would at least provide the basis for your investigation. So um, Robert had lots of local acquaintances. Um, a lot of them were using pot, and a lot of them were involved in sort of very petty crime, but they were just, in a, you know, pretty much an average, um, you know, Western suburban group of young people. We got some information that um, Peter, this Peter had been involved, along with a fellow by the name of Stephen, now, Stephen um, wasn't involved, but eventually, through some um, coaxing and uh, cultivating, um, Stephen eventually became um, a Crown witness and, and, uh, and his evidence, along with some other evidence, we acquired from, from different people within the group. And all of these people were dead set. You know, frightened, legitimately frightened for their lives mm, um, mm. about giving evidence and cooperating with the police. Uh, and uh, Stephen told us that, uh, that they'd all come back to his house 
uh, after the murder. They were all covered in blood. They burnt the clothes in an incinerator in the back, in, the, in his backyard. That uh, they scrubbed out the seats of Wally's car because that had blood all over the back seat. Um, and so we were able to corroborate um, almost everything that Stephen told us and ultimately Peter, Frank and Wally were charged with murder. Um, they all put themselves at the scene. They all created different stories. Um, Wally basically, as it was his car, said he knew nothing about what was going to go on. It all just evolved before him. And he was um, ultimately found not guilty of murder, but he was guilty of um, as an accessory and got a jail sentence for that. Peter, uh, being oh, 19 or 20 years of age at the time, um, said he was under the spell of Frank, who was 40-odd years of age. Yep. And he did um, nothing of um, the actual killing. Um, it, was only meant, it was only ever meant to frighten Robert and that it was all Frank who went berserk. And um, Peter got found not guilty of murder but guilty of manslaughter and, and got a substantial sentence for the manslaughter. In fact, I was amazed um, when I got back to the office, I was really disappointed with the uh, manslaughter verdict. Uh, he got 11 with a 9 and everyone in the office was saying what a great sentence that was for manslaughter. And yet he had had this young kid hacked to death over virtually nothing. Uh, Frank was the one who, uh, um, who tried to blame Peter and saying that he was, you know, a guiding hand, but he you know, didn't think they'd ever follow through with killing him, but he was the one the jury convicted of murder. And he got a, a, a very substantial sentence. Um, uh, so there, but look, our, as I said, our forensic evidence at that stage was, uh, was the tyre tracks, which we matched to uh, Wally's car. Um, the so-called blood in the back of the car, because we didn't have DNA, of course, um, and it, it had been pretty thoroughly washed out to the extent that our, our forensic evidence from that was um, not that the, we found blood in the back of the car, but the, the, um, it, the, there was human material, I think was the term that was used, okay. found in the back of the car. Yep. And it was the same, same blood group as Robert. Um, in relation to uh, the burning of the... Uh, the uh, clothing in the incinerator. We did find some um, zipper zipper links and some um, um, okay. brass buttons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yep. But that's all we had, along with the fact that all of the three um, accused put themselves, at, 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 you know, as to be as being involved in it. But if you look at today's world, I mean, there were no mobile phones then, but. In the same scenario these days, you've got um, the mobile tracking of the mobile phones, the triangulation of the mobile phones. Uh, you've got listening devices at houses, and these this group of people would they would have been just. You know, we, we were aware through uh, some surveillance we were able to conduct that they were running between houses and doing all sorts of chattering. They would have been doing all sorts of chattering, so we would have had the telephone intercepts, the, you know. Um, the listening devices, um, the triangulation of mobile phones, the tracking of the, of the and of course, in 1985, um, that was stuff out of Dick Tracy or yeah, Maxwell Smart. <laughs> yeah, exactly right, exactly right. So yeah. look, we we got a result. Um, uh, you know, being a little hard nosed about this and having seen this, had a look at the scene and understood the horror that Robert went through prior to his death, the correct verdict was um, uh, murder for all three of them. But then I'm a little biased. <laughs> I was the investigator. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, yeah, look, uh, it was, it's, um, uh, it, yeah, it was uh, then and now. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a lifetime in, in, in the passage of time. But, it, you know, I think today's, uh, today's, uh, uh, Tools of trade would have would have st- st- 
stood uh, stood us in really good stead back then. Oh yeah. The result might have been any different. We still might have got a murder, manslaughter, and accessory. But I don't know. I, I sort of think I sort of think we were batting. Uh, we were kicking against the wind a bit. Yeah, you, I reckon these days we probably would have had that uh, done and dusted within a couple of days if they were that yeah. silly. You know, yeah. you'd get you'd get your um, LDs, your telephone intercepts. You, You'd, you'd have them, you know, um, yeah, on a plate in the court yep. within days. But yeah, absolutely. And look, uh, you know, and it was, we, we felt really fortunate that that um, diluted piece of um, blood in the back seat of Wally's car. We felt really fortunate at the time, almost elated that it came back <laughs> as human material <laughs> with Robert's blood group. Yeah. We thought, oh my God, how good is this? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, different world, different. You may have noticed that we've cut John in half and he didn't feel a thing. Uh, Listen next week for the last part of my interview with John. Have a great week, everyone. It's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 